and I hope you are too, because today is the start of our new series, The Kingdom of Heaven is Like, as Keith said earlier. Now, as you've heard that this series is coming, I'm not sure what you've been expecting, if you've been expecting anything. Um, it's possible that you've been expecting a series on what life is going to be like after we die. Um, maybe a series of encouraging messages on how awesome heaven is going to be. Uh, you know, how it's going to have streets of gold and all the dishes we eat off of are going to just magically wash themselves. Um, all our deceased pets will follow us around in a little line and we'll be able to eat all the fried food and ice cream that we want with no worries about heart disease or weight gain or anything like that. That would be a fun series. Um, but unfortunately, if that was what you were hoping for, that's not really where we're headed. Uh, because what this series is going to be about is what Jesus had to say about the kingdom of heaven. And when Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven, uh, he wasn't just talking about something that's going to happen in the future, something that's going to happen when we die. That is part of it. Uh, but he was talking about more than that. He was talking about something that's actually going on right now. In the Gospel of Luke, it says, Once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. So do you hear that? The kingdom of God is within you. So when we talk about God's kingdom, uh, we're not just talking about something that's going to happen in the future, or a place that we're going to go to, but we're actually talking about something that's coming alive in us right now, right here. Now you might say, okay, well hold on here. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God in this verse, but this series is called the kingdom of heaven, right? Um, are these things different, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? Well, I want to suggest I'm convinced that these two titles, kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven, are actually referring to the same thing. And I won't spend a ton of time on this, but just for clarification, uh, I say that for two major reasons. Um, so if you're taking notes. The first one is that Jesus only uses this title, the kingdom of heaven, in the gospel of Matthew. It's the only one where he uses it. In all the other gospels, he uses the phrase, the kingdom of God. And this makes sense because the Gospel of Matthew was the one of the four Gospels that was actually written primarily to a Jewish audience. And the Jews regarded God's name as being so holy and sacred that you weren't supposed to use it most of the time. Uh, a lot of Jewish writing today actually avoids saying or writing God's name. Maybe you've seen some publication from a, from a, from a Jewish organization and you've seen God's name written like that. Has anyone seen that? Uh, and the reason that's done is because there's this understanding that God's name is so holy, it's so, so great that we human beings should be very careful about writing it and saying it. We should show respect by not writing out the whole thing. Um, and so since the Gospel of Matthew was written primarily to a Jewish audience, this tendency to say the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of God is, is a reflection of that, of the audience that it's being written to. So, and the other major reason why I believe Kingdom of God and Kingdom of Heaven are the same um, is because in the different gospel accounts, uh, the terms are used to refer to the same parables some of the time. 
So, uh, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Um, and then in the Gospel of Mark, it says, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Well, what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed that you plant in the ground. And there's a couple of other examples like this. So, I'm of the opinion that kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, as far as I can tell, same thing. But what is that thing, right? That's the question that we're really dealing with this morning. What is the kingdom? Well, I realize, as I try to put it into words, that it's really, really hard to do that. Um, the kingdom is something that's coming in the future. It's the culmination of history. Sometimes when we look throughout history, it just seems to be this sequence of meaningless events and violence and tragedy and everything. But the view of, of, of history that the Bible presents us with is that everything is headed towards something meaningful. There's a point, there's a purpose, and the kingdom of God is the culmination of history. And it's something that's coming in, in the future. But the kingdom is also something that's here now living in Jesus' followers. It's something that Jesus started. We, we catch glimpses of it right now, but we're going to see it in its fulfilled form in the future. Also, the kingdom is what it looks like wherever people follow God's will, here and now, wherever people obey, wherever people embody the values of Jesus. The kingdom is there. And then also, the, king, the kingdom is a way of referring to how the king operates. It's um, saying the kingdom of heaven is like, it's kind of like saying, here's how God handles things. Here's this way of doing stuff. So when we talk about the kingdom, we're talking about this multifaceted thing. And for that reason, it can be a little hard to get our heads around it. But that's what we're going to be trying to do in this series. We're going to be trying to get our heads around what the kingdom is, what it's like. And the way that we're going to be doing that is specifically by looking at Jesus' parables, where he starts with that phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. And these parables, they're short little stories or images that Jesus used. He didn't usually talk directly about the kingdom. He used these images, these, these stories, to get um, the, the idea about what the kingdom is across. So that's what we're going to be looking at. And the parable we're looking at today is what's known as the parable of the weeds, or sometimes the parable of the wheat and the tares. It's in Matthew 13. It starts in verse 24. So if you have your Bibles, I definitely encourage you to follow along. And uh, this, is, this parable is going to start with that phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, and it's going to answer questions about all those aspects of the kingdom that I just mentioned. It's going to say something about what this future kingdom is going to be like, uh, this future kingdom that's the culmination of history. It's going to say something about how Jesus' followers should embody the kingdom now. And it's going to say something about how God operates, how God handles things. But before we read it, let's say a quick prayer together. Lord, uh, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for how interesting Jesus is. We thank you that when you uh, spoke through him, that you spoke in a way that's fascinating, God. Um, we thank you for these mysterious parables, and we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and minds up to be able to understand them and receive what it is that you want to teach us through them. God, we pray that you give us wisdom and discernment. Um, I pray that uh, 
you would help us to take from this parable exactly what it is that you want us to know. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed wheat, weeds among the wheat, and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first, collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then, gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. And then if you skip ahead to verse 36, we have Jesus giving the explanation for the parable. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So I'd like to start by admitting that I just find this parable really, really fascinating. I, I love this parable. And part of the reason for that is because of something that Jesus says in his explanation. He says in verse 38, the field is the world. The field is the world. In other words, Jesus isn't talking here uh, specifically about just the church. Right? He's, uh, he's not just talking about the nation of Israel. This isn't some parochial small thing. He's talking about all of creation, the world. So there's this incredible scope to this parable. And it's even possible, and I think likely, that Jesus is describing something that's been playing out since the very beginning of history here. Uh, he says that the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. Right? Now, the Son of Man is a title that's used to refer to Jesus. And we know from John's Gospel that Jesus uh, was there in the very beginning of creation. Another word for Jesus is the Word. And it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it says, through him all things were made that have been made, nothing that has been, nothing that was made, sorry. Uh, through Jesus all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has, has been made. Nothing Without him, nothing was made that has been made. I'm sorry. Um, so even though the Son of Man's earthly life didn't begin until 2016 years ago, the Son of Man existed way before that, right? And in fact, there has just never been a time when the Son of Man wasn't. So this parable might be talking about something that goes as far back as the beginning of creation, the 
beginning of the world as we know it. And when, when we think about this parable from that perspective, we can see that it's expressing a mystery. And this mystery is what's often referred to as the problem of evil. Um, the problem of evil is essentially this. This is something that I've thought about a lot. When I was in college ministry, um, I worked with a lot of students who were really skeptical, and the problem of evil would just come up all the time. And the problem of evil is this. If God is all-powerful, and if he's all-good, why is the world so messed up? Um, if all of creation starts with this perfect God, then why is the creation imperfect? Why is there death and disease and disfigurement? Why is there injustice and murder and robbery and violence? And it's not an easy question to answer. And in verse 27, you see the servants of the farmer asking that question. It says, the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? So you see, that's the problem of evil right there. Now, God, if you're so good and you're so powerful, didn't you create a good world? No, why is it such a mess? Why the weeds? And then verse 28 gives us the answer. Now, I can't say that it's a particularly satisfying answer. But it is a significant one. It says, an enemy did this, he replied. And Jesus tells us in his explanation of the parable that the enemy is the devil. Now, I said that answer is not particularly satisfying, but it is significant. And the reason I say that is, I say it's not particularly satisfying because for those of us who are thinking philosophically, um, it doesn't really answer the question. It just pushes it back a little further, right? Maybe that's an explanation for why lots of bad things happen in the world, but we're still left wondering, well, why is the devil so bad and why does he exist, right? So from a philosophical angle, this question still leaves a lot of mystery in the picture. But it is a significant response. Uh, because what this parable is teaching very clearly, what Jesus is teaching very clearly, is that God is not responsible for the evil that we see in the world. Okay? All these weeds that we see of injustice and murder and robbery and violence, that's not God. He's not the source of that. It's not his will. Uh, you might remember that when we were going through the book of James, we talked about the passage where it says that God is not tempted to do evil, and uh, nor does he tempt anyone to do evil. And the farmer's answer to the workers is basically saying the same thing, that God is not the author of evil. The farmer didn't plant those weeds, an enemy did. So that's a very significant point. But beyond giving us that significant point, the parable doesn't really solve, solve the mystery. And maybe that's because it's not something that can be solved in this life. You know, maybe uh, the problem of evil is a mystery that we have to live with. Maybe living with that mystery is part of what it means to live a life of faith. But that said, I do want to add that if you are struggling with the problem of evil, I would like to offer my perspective on what helps me the most in dealing uh, with that problem. And the best way that I found to make sense of the problem of evil is through the understanding that God's nature is love. That's what we're told in 1 John. God is love. Because love doesn't force itself on someone else. 
Love allows the beloved person to freely accept or reject the love that's being offered. I think we intuitively understand that. You know, we know that manipulation and control aren't really reflective of the character of love. We know that in relationships, manipulation and control is an ugly thing. And so if we can tell that in our own relationships, and we know that God's nature is love, and we know that God is loving in a meaningful sense, then it makes sense that his creation would have an ability, a freedom, to accept or reject the love that he offers. And so when you think of it that way, you can see how in the act of creating, a loving God would be creating a world that would have power to resist his will. And ultimately, God is going to triumph. God is not... God is not going to lose here. Um, he's got a plan, and he's, he's working it out. And evil will not have the last word by any stretch. Um, but because God is love, and because he wants a creation that can have real relationship with him, uh, freedom exists, and that means evil exists for a time. So that's what I offer to you. I find, I find solace and comfort and understanding in this idea that God is love. And in the hope that I have through Jesus that um, God also has suffered with us. That we see in Jesus a God who is willing to take suffering upon himself. And ultimately to triumph over it in resurrection. So that thinking helps me personally. I offer it to you as one way of thinking about it. But whatever you do with the problem of evil, there's one thing this parable is clear about. And that is that you cannot blame God for the evil. An enemy did this. Now, here's where things get really interesting. The servants say, do you want us to go and pull him up? So this raises the question, what, what does that mean? What do those words represent? What does it mean to pull up weeds? And it's a, little, it's a little disappointing from my perspective that when Jesus gives the explanation of the parable, he doesn't say anything about that. You know, he says, this means this and this means this, but he doesn't say, and uprooting me weeds means when this happens. But he doesn't do that. But I think we can figure it out, and I think he thinks we can figure it out too. To uproot a weed is to kill it, right? It's a forceful action where you grab it and you yank it and you cast it aside. And so if the weeds represent the sons of the evil one, the sons of the devil, then to uproot a weed would be to try and destroy one of those people through force. Uh, so th that could mean a lot of things, right? That could mean literally trying to kill somebody who does evil. It could also mean something like trying to round up all the people that we think are evil and send them off to some sort of desert or island or concentration camp. Um, I think that it could even mean attacking people with our words. So maybe somebody is saying something that you think is evil. Um, they're making an argument that sounds evil. This is very relevant, I think, in our political season right now. And um, your, your means of responding to them could be to try and attack and demean and humiliate them in that moment. That, to me, strikes me as a form of uprooting the weeds, responding to evil with force and violence. So when we hear the servants say, do you want us to go and pull them up? I think what we need to hear is something like, do you want us to go and get them, God? 
Do you want us to go and take those evil people down? Do you want us to humiliate them, to argue them into a corner? Do you want us to go and blow them up, to force them out, to give them what for? Is that what we should do? And the farmer's answer is profound, especially when we consider that this is supposed to represent God, right? It says in verse 29, No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. So why shouldn't we uproot weeds? Because we may root up the wheat with them. There's something about forcefully and violently going after evil that does damage to the people of God's kingdom too. And I want to suggest this morning that there's two main reasons for that. And these two main reasons are very much tied to the illustration that Jesus is giving with the wheat in the weeds. There's no, no accidents here. The first reason is because it's not always obvious who's part of the kingdom and who isn't. So the Greek word that's translated here as weeds is uh, something that's also called darnel. And darnel is something that looks a lot like wheat. It's, uh, it's on the right in this picture. You've got wheat on one side and darnel on the other. And according to Wikipedia, uh, darnel usually grows in the same production zones as wheat. And the similarity between these plants is so great that in some regions, darnel is actually called false wheat. Uh, so it can, it can be very difficult to distinguish between the two, especially before the ear of the plant has appeared. And what Jesus wants us to recognize is that just as it's hard to tell the difference between wheat and darnel, it's also not so easy to tell the difference between the people of the kingdom and the people of the evil one. With some people, it's really hard to tell. With some people, their two colors don't show until the very end, right up until the harvest. And Jesus is clear in a lot of other places that there's going to be surprises about who's in the kingdom and who's not. I think one of the best examples of this is the Apostle Paul. We should have, I'm sure we've all heard of him, because since this church is named after him. So <clears throat> the book of Acts tells us that before Paul became a Christian, before he became a follower of Christ, he was a Jew who believed that the Christians were heretics and that they needed to be stopped. And in the book of Acts, it describes this one scene where a man named Stephen is trying to tell a crowd about Jesus, and the crowd gets really upset, and so they stone him, and they kill him. So they kill him by throwing rocks at him, which is a pretty brutal thing. And it says that while that is happening, Paul is there giving approval to his death. So while this Christian man is being brutally killed... For sharing his faith, Paul is there and he's watching and he's like, mm, well done, men. Yep, good job. Now, if at that point in Paul's life the Christians were asked, is Paul a wheat or a weed? I think their answer would have been obvious, right? That man is a weed. <laughs> he is a weed who is strangling the wheat, who is killing the wheat. He's persecuting the sons of the kingdom. He's awful. And what if the early Christians had said, let's go pull up that weed. Let's go get him. Do you know what would have happened if they had done that? I think most of us know. Well, for one thing, the Bible would be a lot shorter. 
Because Paul went on to have this incredible conversion experience. Um, he became a follower of Christ, and he wrote a large portion of the New Testament. A huge portion of it. it was Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon. That's all Paul. My favorite thing to say to anybody who says, I just feel like God can't use me, you know, I've messed up too much in the past, is to like take that chunk of the Bible and hold it up and say, this was written by a guy who was killing Christians before he was discipling them. So I think God can use you. So if Christians had cast judgment at the wrong time about Paul, if they had tried to uproot that weed, they would have been not only uprooting someone who is truly wheat, but they would have been uprooting a lot of other wheat with him, right? Because how many people have come to know Christ through Paul? It's like you can't even calculate that. That's an incredible number of people. So a lot of wheat would have been uprooted. From our limited vantage point, we can't know who's wheat and who's a weed. Can't be certain who's in the kingdom and who's not. Because the truth won't be revealed until the end. Until the harvest. And it's at that point, the culmination of history, that God will fairly judge and he will separate the wheat from the weeds. But that's his job. It's not ours. And so if we try to attack or eliminate or humiliate people who do evil, we may be harming people who, if allowed the time, will submit to God's kingdom. We may be harming our own. Second reason that uprooting weeds is harmful for the people of God's kingdom is because the people of the kingdom and the people of the evil one can't be easily separated right now. So we're going to go back to the agricultural metaphor here. So one of the reasons why you might uh, uproot wheat when you're uprooting the weeds is because even if you do manage to only pull out weeds, uh, if the wheat and weeds are growing close together, their root systems have become intertwined. Uh, so if you yank out a weed, you might also damage the root system of some of the wheat. And I think that's a great analogy for all of us, because right now, in this life, all of us, like the wheat in the weeds, we're connected to each other in so many ways. And so violent attacks on evil rarely attack just evil. And, I mean, we know there's a military term that recognizes this reality. It's, it's called collateral damage, right? Collateral damage is the damage that's done to civilians in war when you're trying to stop the enemy. And it's very hard to eliminate collateral damage, because it's not easy to separate the enemy from everybody else. Everyone and everything is very connected. So assaults on the enemy often have the unintended, unintended effect of hurting the innocent. Now, I hesitate to bring up that example because I don't want to suggest that there's no place uh, for military action in defending a country. That's not, not the point of what I'm trying to say this morning. All I'm trying to say is that all of us are connected. And so it is a reality that both on a national level and on an individual level, when we try to deal with evil through violent force, we usually end up with collateral damage, right? That's just part of the way things work. Things are connected. Our root, system, our root systems are intertwined. And what Jesus is saying is that when, when we in the church make it our policy 
to deal with evil through violent force, we usually end up with that collateral damage because the weeds and the wheat are intertwined in the roots. We're all connected. All right. So if you're anything like me, at this point you're wondering, well then how are we supposed to deal with evil? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to respond when people are a threat to our safety and the safety of our families? Are we just supposed to do nothing? Are we just supposed to let the weeds grow? That doesn't seem smart. Well, one thing is for sure. Okay, when it comes to dealing with evil, God does not want us to do nothing. Uh, definitely not. He, Jesus said we're supposed to be the salt of the earth. And salt in those days was put on meat to act as a preservative. They didn't have refrigeration the way we do now. So the way that you preserved the meat was through salt. And he said, you know, you guys, the church, you're supposed to be the salt of the earth. You're supposed to act as a preservative that preserves the good and keeps, keeps uh, the, 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 the evil away, essentially. Keeps the, everything from going bad. So we are supposed to contend for what is good. But there's a good way to do that, and there's a not-so-good way to do that. And the not-so-good way is the way that looks at people as weeds that need to be pulled. Okay, it's the attitude that says, that person is a bad seed, so let's get him. Let's attack him. Let's humiliate him. Let's uproot him and watch him wither. That attitude usually does more harm than good. But the good way of dealing with evil follows Jesus' example. So the good way doesn't say, I'm going to get you. The good way says, I'm going to love you, even when it's hard. The good way says, I'm going to try to bless you. The good way says, I'm going to treat you not as a weed that needs to be pulled, but as a person who might actually be a member of God's everlasting kingdom. Even if it doesn't look like it right now. Because for all I know, that is what you are. And I want to be clear, when it comes to the application of this, we have to be nuanced, you know? It's not like I'm saying, you know, if there's anybody in your life who's being evil that you shouldn't um, do something about that, <laughs> that you should just let them do what they're doing and just say, I'm just going to love you. There are times where the most loving thing we can do to a person who is abusive is to cut them out of our lives, okay? so. I'm not, I want to be careful about how we, how we apply this, okay? But there's a difference between the attitude that says, I'm going to do what I'm doing to get you, to destroy you, and the attitude that says, I'm going to do what I'm doing because I'm trying to love you, I'm trying to bless you, I'm trying to help you. It's a big difference between those two things. And if we can live with the latter attitude, the attitude that says, I'm going to try to bless you, we're going to avoid uprooting a lot of wheat. And we might even start seeing a lot of people who we thought were weeds looking more like wheat. And that will make the harvest even more glorious. So, let's pray. Lord, I pray uh, that we would have an attitude that glorifies and honors you that when it, when it comes to dealing with evil people in the world, that you would give us the strength uh, not to have an attitude of 
trying to attack or demean or humiliate, um, but of, of trying to have an attitude uh, like Christ of loving people even when they're sinners. Lord, I pray that you would also help us to have patience, to trust that you will make things right, that you will judge fairly, and that as we wait for that, we can have confidence that that will happen and that that will enable us to love in the present. God, I pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment as we seek to apply these words. And uh, we just thank you, God, uh, for the mysteries that you taught us about through these parables and ask that you continue to reveal more to us in the coming weeks. In Jesus' name, amen.